The Fake Show podcast is brought to you by the law firm of Hutchison and Stefan, the Craft House Brewery, now with two locations, the Tone Factory Recording Studios in Las Vegas, Moonshot.com T-shirt designs, Mr. Antenna, and Banger Brewing in downtown Las Vegas. It's The Fake Show with Jim Tofty. Recently, the great music writer and critic Jim Farber reminded people why the year 1970 was such a great one in the history of music. The year included the Isle of Wight Festival with over 600,000 people in attendance to watch the largest rock festival of all time featuring Jimi Hendrix, The Who, The Doors, Chicago, Emerson, Lake and Palmer, and many more. It was a year of huge breakups, including the Beatles and major breakthroughs like the Jackson 5. I've got Jim Farber on the line right now in New York City to talk about the year 1970. Jim, thank you so much for joining me. I've admired your writing and ear for music for quite some time. It was kind of a pleasant surprise to see it in uh, Parade Magazine this past weekend. Um, I do. I do hope you saw it online uh, rather than than in print. Only because in print, where it looked nice, it's just a small portion of what was online. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I was checking it out, and it had nice uh, little music bits in it as well. I heard somewhere that you your first piece that you wrote for Rolling Stone, you were only seventeen years old. Is that right? That's true. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I was still in high school, and um, it was uh, God. I guess it was uh, uh, well. I don't if people. You've got a classic rock station. People may know about the move. Um, yes. Kind of later gave way to um, Electric Light Orchestra and Roy Wood's Wizard. The move never toured the United States, but um, because they had been banned, I think, for burning a American flag or British flag in England or something. Right. So, so it was finally Roy Wood's Wizard toured in 1974, and that was a big deal, just because, you know, those who loved the movie never got to see them, and so that was the first review I did for Rolling Stone when I was in, in high school. Wow, that's it. How exciting must that have been for you? It was great. Yeah. I was writing for the, you know, just a local paper there. I mean, obviously, first a high school newspaper, and then a local paper. I grew up just north of New York and Westchester, and um, yeah. You know, I mean, it was, I mean, I pursued it, obviously. You know? Yeah. It wasn't something that fell out of the sky. Very Cameron Crowe-like to, to get a, a quick start like that, though. What's funny, actually, when Almost Famous came out, a friend of mine called me, after he'd seen it, called me the next day, and he, sa- and he said, I saw Almost You last night. <laughs> but, you know, C- Cameron took it a lot further. <laughs> That's hysterical. Well, like you, I believe people take for granted what a pivotal year in music 1970 was. It sure was, wasn't I mean, there were a lot of things happening around the world, historically and politically, that had uh, influenced the artists and the bands of the day, for sure, right? Yeah, definitely. Of course, I mean, obviously, music reflects its time. You know, people are writing, artists are writing about the world, you know, what they're going through at that time. So the kind of... What I tried to do in the piece, and and I want to be clear that I was this piece was was focused on 1970 as a year. I think unfortunately a lot of people misread from the letters I saw, misread and thought that it was the 1970s. Right. And it wasn't the entire decade. It was just that that year that had turned that began the decade. And one thing that uh, so I tried to focus not only on um, newer bands and bands that were ending, but also on trends of the day, things that were new. And the overall focus that I gave it, because I'd noticed that the number one song of the year was Simon and Garfunkel's Bridge Over Troubled Water, and it was also um, 
The Beatles Let It Be and Ooh Child by Five Stair Steps. And these songs that really were very comforting songs, you know, and that was really important at the time because, you know, the beginning of a new decade, I think there was a lot of hope that maybe it would be better than what people had just been through, you know, uh, the late 60s. I was only 12 years old then, but weird enough, have uh, very, very vivid memories of all of it. Yeah. It's all, it just seems like yesterday to me, which is incredible. We're about the same age, and I vividly remember, well, we're probably the same in that music. We can remember what was happening when the song was playing, you know, and for some reason, the summer of 1970 is very vivid to me, and there was a lot of stuff happening musically. Definitely, yeah. So, <laughs> so yeah, so what I was saying is one thing is that well, you know, music and memory are intimately connected. There have been a lot of scientific studies about this, and even people I know who claim to have bad memories, what memories they do have, are very often connected to music. Um, but just to speak of 1970, you know, we were coming out of a time where the Vietnam War was still going on. There had been these assassinations in 68. 1969 was even more tense in terms of the... Um, uh, protesting and uh, fractious sort of atmosphere. Um, and so there, I think the reason that they resonated was because they were songs that were meant to tell people that the world could be better. And it's interesting to be writing this piece now because we're almost in exactly the same time now for very different reasons. <laughs> and um, there yeah, yeah. is a very different context, but it's incredibly similar. I keep on thinking and watching the protest movement. I live in New York City, so it's outside my window. I think this is so similar to when I was 12 years old. The Five Stair Steps, that song is, is so great. Ooh, child. That song came out of nowhere, really, because no one knew who they were. And my question is, why weren't they? bigger than they were. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I mean, they, they did have an audience um, in in, um, in the R&B world. You know, the, their, Uchal was their big crossover to pop, and it was intended that way. You know, they're, they're, uh, the guy who wrote it and their producer sort of uh, were trying to move the group in a way that would um, get onto get onto pop radio, and uh, even though Uchal certainly reads as, as an R&B or soul song, it was also was a pop song. Um, and so it kind of served both functions. Um, but they, they did they did have their own audience at that time. And as far as, you know, whenever you ask the question of why the group wasn't bigger, there's so many reasons for that. And um, I know because I've worked at record companies, yeah. unfortunately a lot of it is pre-selected. You know, record companies, particularly at that time, need to, needed to promote the artist. If the artist isn't getting the right promotion... If they're not getting the right encouragement, if the right payoffs even aren't being made back at that time, um, the records weren't played on the radio. And at that time, records were sold because they were played on the radio, because people heard them. You didn't have a time when people could discover, you know, the way they can now on their own through YouTube. You really, you know, it had to go through that gatekeeper of radio. Something that is interesting about the year 1970 is that, as with every year, there were legends like Crosby, Stills, Nash Young, The Beatles, and Simon and Garfunkel really on the verge of breaking up, weren't they? Yeah, that's what's so interesting is that, um, you know, you have, again, I was first mentioning the songs by Simon and Garfunkel and Breedles, but they broke up that year, and Crosby, Stills, Nash Young broke up there as, as a, you know, as, as a, they still got together in other ways, but I mean, it generally is an ongoing principle they got away. They, they broke up. Um, so, yeah, there was a lot that was coming apart, and particularly groups were coming apart, and you began to have a lot of individuals, you know. So another trend that I was writing about was, uh, I mentioned particularly Elton John and James Taylor, because they broke through that year, and that was really the beginning 
of the singer-songwriter movement. Songwriting had been really huge in the folk movement of the 60s and really kind of began to become important with Bob Dylan in terms of people writing their own songs. That became important, a kind of centralization of effort where before you used to have a different distribution of talent. Someone would just be a singer, someone else was a dedicated lyricist, someone else was a dedicated music writer, and with the singer-songwriter movement, was, and, and again, presaged by Dylan and the Beatles, now it's a one-stop shop. Every, each person is meant to do everything. So you, you saw that in a big breakthrough with uh, first James Taylor at the beginning of that, that year, and, uh, and Elton John as well. Joni Mitchell had already been writing, but that, you know, these are the times when um, singer-songwriters are really beginning to take over from bands, particularly psychedelic bands. The music was becoming, Carole King, obviously, the music was becoming more intimate and close. Um, but it, that was a big, big change, and it was funny because um, there was a Rolling Stone cover story at that time in 1970. Um, I might not have exactly the cover line right, right but it's, it's something like his Rock Dead. You know, it was the first of the endless is Rock Dead stories. It was nice Rock, you know, can you ask, is Rock Dead in 1970? Think of all the amazing <laughs> coming out then and later. But the reason it was asked within that myopic context of the time is because it was new that these sing individual so singer-songwriters, uh, much kind of quieter, more intimate, were taking over from the previous reign of really loud psychedelic rock bands. I think it was you who wrote, you're talking about the Beatles, Let It Be, that John Lennon didn't necessarily like that song, at least initially. No, he thought it was really wimpy. <laughs> but that was John. I mean, that, that's one of the great things about him. You know, I mean, he was the great um, corrective to the more sappy elements of McCartney. You know, uh, right. This is a cliche. It's always been written about. But they, they kind of needed each other to kind of balance it out. And McCartney had this incredible sense of melody still, you know, still is, is batting out great melodies years later. But there's something, you know, there's, there's an edge that's gone. You know, it's like you kind of need somebody to kind of uh, help with that and, and give it more... Um, grit. Another huge hit in 1970 was B.J. Thomas's Raindrops Keep Falling on My Head. Certainly, it didn't hurt that it was played in uh, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, and it won an Oscar for Best Song. Well, that's when it really took off. I mean, it's funny because the song came out a bit before, and it wasn't doing that well. And then, once the movie came out and it was a huge hit, then it was, you know, it was selling 100,000 copies a week of just the song, you know? So, um, yeah, I mean, my God, that was an early example of synergy. <laughs> you had the movie and the song going at the same time, and they were both huge hits. I suppose the females in the audience were visualizing Paul Newman on the bike with Catherine Ross, because that's when that song played. Exactly. <laughs> that's the way you would see it then. And that's also, you know, I'm glad you mentioned that context, because that's a good way of sort of framing what music videos would become, but where people all of a sudden had a visual as well. And I think that's a hook. I mean, this was a, a big argument that you remember when MTV came in, you know, so many people of an earlier generation were saying, oh, no, you know, we don't want these visuals because it's going to crowd out our personal, you know, um, visualization of the song. To be true, I thought it's just adding to it. It's another vocabulary. You still have your mind. You know, your mind is still, even when you're looking at something, you're, you're you know, it's processed through your head. <laughs> so you're still seeing other things and thinking other things and recontextualizing it based on your life. So I think you always bring your imagination to anything that 
that that you experience. Speaking of a Burt Bacharach hit like Raindrops Keep Falling on My Head, The Carpenters had a huge hit with Close to You in 1970, and it always seemed to me like they were chasing that magic of, of Close to You and We've Only Just Begun the rest of their career, because those two songs, boy, that was a hard act to follow. Yeah, but I mean, I think, I think there were a lot, yeah, definitely. Um, but I think, you know, there, there was a... I think they had a lot of good stuff after that, and a lot of it was just centered. Um, I mean, Richard's Richard's arrangements and productions are important, but but Karen's yeah. voice was yeah. just so incredible. To me, what was so amazing about it, and I've discussed it with a lot of critics since, who it would have felt, oh, you know, this is quite uncool at the time, which it certainly was. But um, there's incredible sadness in that voice, incredible sadness, um, which is, you know a little more emotion and profundity than you expect on the pop charts and isn't necessarily even intended it's just sound there was something in her voice that's so somber and it just i remember even as a kid i wouldn't have been able to articulate it then but i thought like this is heavy (laughs) yeah same thing for me and as i got older i always felt well i mean it's it's good it's a guilty pleasure just like bread was but now all these years later i realize man the the production values and the songwriting was just amazing with those two bands sure and i mean i know this well because and, and i'm sure you do too when you're a kid um in those very vulnerable years when you're trying to figure out who you are, you know, you, be, you try to, you're trying to base your personality on something. And when you're trying to do that, it's usually at the exclusion of something else, right? So you'll notice with young people, it'll be like, I have a favorite band or a favorite artist, but then you need to demonize somebody. It has to be an opposition. <laughs> That's a common yeah. way that people process this stuff when they're younger. And then exactly as you say, when you get older, you integrate both those things. You realize, oh, that thing that I thought was so ridiculous and uncool because it didn't have this quality or that. It's actually really got a lot of great stuff going for it. You become more fat. Right, yeah. Well, and I mean, as a morning radio guy, I couldn't uh, admit that while I was playing Led Zeppelin, I kind of secretly liked The Carpenters. No, you could not admit it. <laughs> That's right. There's a there's a song, I, I don't know why this popped up recently for me, but it's a song I just love, and it was written about Woodstock. It's Melanie's Lay Down Candles, and I saw, I guess it was because I had a chance to interview her and then she backed out because she's still kind of shy and if you've ever seen her sing that song with the Edwin Hawkins singers it is the stuff of legend oh my god I mean you know Melanie has I I wrote a long piece for a um, a website called Music Aficionada which deals with a lot of you know obviously classic music um about the power of her voice. She's a fantastic singer, yeah. my God. I think she, you know, she had this image problem to some people of being this, like, you know, the hippie who kisses cows and it's like peace and love. <laughs> <laughs> when you go into her catalog, there's actually a lot of edgy stuff, and the voice is great. And what, if you really like that, I don't know if you've heard it or anybody out there has heard it, but if they haven't, if you only know the single version of Lay Down, there is a version out there, certainly you can find it streaming now, a full, it's over seven minutes of, of um, her version, a version with, um, with the Edwin Hawkins singers that's really yeah. incredible. Gospel interaction between, you know, the call, the call and response, that's just terrific. It's interesting, you mentioned uh, Elton John and how he he kind of took off with your song and and originally he gave that to Three Dog Night but they decided not to release it as a single so he did exactly you know Three Dog Night were they, they didn't write their stuff that, which was seen as very uncool at the time you were meant to write um, right. I mean, they had big hits but they, they were not seen as cool within the you know 
groovy FM undergrad. But so they were always looking for writers, um, and they were already successful. So a lot of writers really want to pitch their songs to them. Um, I was talking with Danny Hutton for this piece about that, and yeah, he had told me that that Elton uh, had pitched the song to them and really wanted them to record it. They did record it, but they didn't release it as a single, and that that made it, you know, so it didn't crowd out Elton's. It was just an accident. They didn't do that to make way for Elton, but it it, it helped, certainly. Um, And that song, I can certainly remember when I first heard it, you know, one of the things that's so great in that song, both in the been your song, both in the lyric and in the way the music matches, is that moment you'll remember far into it that becomes conversational. You know, when he says, anyway, the thing is what I really mean. That's yeah. it's so moving. Yes. And speaking of Three Dog Night, Mama Told Me Not to Come, did they originally, did they have a kind of a problem with doing that uh, initially? And did they have to warm up to it? Yeah, I mean, that's another thing that, that, that Danny Hutton had told me, that he, he, you know, didn't really think, musically, I mean, not as far as the content of the song. He, um, that, that is the lyrical content. He, he, he sort of felt it wasn't working. I think it took him a while to get at the right arrangement. Um, and once the arrangement came through, then he realized, oh, this was a really strong hook, and it would work. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, it's an odd, it's a hilarious and odd song to become such a hit at that time, because, you know, this is the height of sex and drugs and rock and roll, and it's it's sort of a, I mean, it's making fun of someone who's uptight about drugs, but it's, it's kind of, it's a, you know... Typical of Randy Newman, it's an ironic viewpoint, and irony in general doesn't play that well on hit radio. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, and it's kind of it's kind of spoken word through half yeah, the yeah, song, definitely. isn't it? <laughs> 1970 was all about the Jackson 5 in terms of a band that was just getting going. They had, what, four hit singles? No, um, It was just, it's... Um, yeah. But then, um, I forgot this one, the fifth got to, like, number two, or it was almost like number one. I mean, it or got really high in, in, the, in the top five. Um, so, yeah, they, they really, that's what seemed like kind of the new Beatles. And, you know, I remember hearing them, you know, when they first came on, you had this, this sense that... Um, this was like everything Motown had been doing through the 60s, but, you know, put on 78, like it was like faster. Uh, it was, those records were so fast, you know, the, the upbeat ones, and so intense. And you had the energy of Michael, who was a phenomenon because he's, you know, 12 years old. And he, you can tell it's a kid in a way because of the pitch of the voice, but he's singing with, I think, more soul and passion than he had as an adult. The, the irony of yes. him, he had this incredible soul as a kid, and then he almost seemed to work against it when he got older. Yeah, and uh, they sort of saved Motown and extended Motown for a while there, Definitely. didn't they? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was bringing it, because, you know, it's again, it's a new decade, so, and Motown had been so important in the 60s. Um, and it, you know, it's, it's a difficult transition. The company was also changing. They were moving from Detroit to L.A. Uh, with different goals in mind. You know, Barry Gordy wanted to get uh, Diana Ross into movies, which he did very successfully at first. Um, so it was, it was a big change in the company, and it, w- it was a kind of definitely a transitional time for them. There's a category that I like to call really great one-hit wonders, and, and there were bands like Shocking Blue with oh, Venus, yeah. and where were they after that? Uh, nowhere, but um, <laughs> I love the B-side, which was hot sand, actually. But, you know, another thing about them that's really cool with Shocking Blue is that they were, I think they were from Denmark? So they were one of the few, you know, who, 
I mean, they're definitely European. You know, they're, they're not the UK, right. US access. Um, so that was unusual. You know, this is before ABBA. It was unusual to have international uh, pop acts do as well in America, do that well in America on the pop charts. No, well, maybe they were exhausted because they had to sing in English. It was just two, one song. It that's it. We're out of here. But what a song. Just great. You know, another one, and uh, I've talked to Tommy James about this, Alive and Kickin' with Tighter and Tighter, because they were, Tommy James was offered that song and they turned it down, he said, all these years later. So many examples of that, yeah, of people who have been offered this or that song, or this or that movie, you know, because you don't know. (laughs) Really, you know, hindsight is is perfect, you know. Jim, I interviewed Norman Greenbaum not Uh, too long ago about Spirit in the Sky. He still, up until the pandemic hit, he was still going out and doing some summer festivals with other bands, other oldies bands. And he said he's done very well by that song because at this point, it's been used in so many movies and TV shows that uh, he's gotten some great residuals. Yeah, I mean, it's all about owning your publishing, you know. Um, that's why I don't, uh, you, I don't know if you maybe are about to ask about this. I don't know. But one thing I, I had fun reporting in this story was about... Um, you know, a, a guy who also you wouldn't expect to have um, royalties, but did uh, on, on the um, publishing was with Tony Burroughs, who basically a British singer who sang so many of the bubblegum pop hits of 1970. And because he he was actually a session singer, but because he had such clout, he was able to say, well, you know, if, if I'm going to sing on the song, you have to give me some of the publishing, and that you know that means he has that money coming in forever. Artists, you know, having publishing is so important because let's say you can't tour anymore um, or you don't want to tour anymore, you'll still have money coming in. For the artists who didn't do a lot of writing, that's why some, of the, some prominent artists that you see still on the road and you wonder why they're still on the road. It's because that's the only way of making money. They didn't own the publishing. You know, they got the money from the uh, initial record sales and then they need to kind of keep churning it out, you know. It was a rich year. I mean, Chicago was really, was, their second album was so great. The Temptations, San, Santana, just a rich year in, in music, wasn't it, uh, when you look back yeah, on it? Yeah, and there's so many things even, you know, uh, and way more than I could put in this piece. I mean, in 1970, you know, Black Sabbath put out its first album, so that's, you know, retroactively say there were heavy metal records before that, certainly, Led Zeppelin and all this, but Blue Cheer, whatever. But... You know, that Black Sabbath record really codified what heavy metal was going to be in terms of the imagery, in terms of the density of the sound and the way the uniformity of it. You had, you know, ELP had just begun, you know, was, you know which is not the first prog rock group, prog rock group but advancing that uh, in particular. There were a lot of trends that started. Um, I mean, my God, if you go to jazz, you had Miles Davis' Bitches Brew, which was really kicked off the, the, the fusion movement. Yeah. How can people check out the stuff that you write? Music Aficionado, is that the That's best place, place to go? I, I write a lot for The Guardian. Um, I, you know, I write for The New York Times. Not all of it you would see for an interesting reason, because, um, or you, you will see eventually, but um, I, uh, I won't tell you who, but I regularly write advanced obituaries for The New York Times. Um, your uh, listeners might not know that such things are done. Right. On very prominent people have to be done in advance because now with the media appetite, people expect, you know, someone prominent dies and they expect to have a 3,000 word well researched piece up 15 minutes later. It's not possible to produce that unless you had done it before and then you just update it with what happens 
But I say that in, when I do those things, and other people do these things, obviously, they're not done um, based on an awareness of people being sick or anything. It's just people over a certain age and you know, it's going to happen eventually. It could be another 20 years. I know that there are people out there who do that. That's for sure. I've just never spoken to one. It's well, amazing. Well, you know, you want a funny thing about that. There are examples of, including one recently, where the advanced obituary writer died before the person they wrote about. Um, <laughs> the New York Times, they will say that. You know, at the end, they'll say, you know, such and such died in whatever year or so. Um, and then you can tell that this thing was on ice for a long time. That's fantastic. Jim Farber, oh, a pleasure talking to you. I, I hope that we can do it again sometime when we have another uh, music subject. This is great. I appreciate your time. The 50th anniversary is a lot of great years. 71 is no slouch. 72 is no slouch. All right, Jim, thank you so much. You Let's do much. it again. Bye. You can catch Jim Farber's work in so many places like The Guardian, The New York Times, Time Magazine, The Huffington Post, and more. I hope that you enjoyed this as much as I did. Love talking about music. I'm Jim Toff and I'll see you back here next time. Listen to The Fake Show on SoundCloud and get alerts when there are new episodes.